0: Good morning and welcome to the Biddericky Baptist Church sermon this week. I hope you've enjoyed the worship that we've just shared together. Thanks to Pete and Corinne White for putting that together for us. It's always good when we, when we meet together. We sometimes come feeling, um, feeling low. Sometimes we come feeling absolutely on top of the world. I know that for many parents of young children this week with an end to homeschooling in sight will be feeling absolutely ecstatic as we realise that we begin to get back the time that we've, that we've, had to spend teaching over the past few months. I know I for one am am looking forward to having um, a summer holiday for the first time since I left school. So it's good to be here, it's good to be out in the open enjoying God's creation and it's also good to share together in God's word and learning what's in store for us this morning which we're going to be doing shortly. But first I'm going to open this time together with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the world around us. Lord, thank you for all the beautiful things that we can see, all the beautiful acts of creation that take place every single day. Father, thank you for the peace and the quiet that we can find when we go to spend time with you. Lord God, this morning as we, as we tune into this Service, um, whether we're watching it on Sunday morning or whether it's a different time of the day or even a different time of the week, Lord, we pray that you will bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you will, you will inspire us, that you will touch our hearts and our minds, that you will, you will deepen our knowledge and understanding of, of our relationship with you. And Father, most of all, we pray that you will help us to learn more about the way that you want us to live our lives. So that by the, the end of this service, by the end of our morning worship today, we go away feeling more buoyant, feeling happier, feeling better about the world than perhaps we did when we started watching this. Because, Father, we know that we are receiving from you and we are in your presence. And for that, we give thanks. So, Father, fill our homes and our hearts with your Holy Spirit and bless us as we worship together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who joined in the sermon last week, you will remember that we were looking at the opening of 2 Kings, chapter 5. And it's a story of Naaman. And we looked at how Naaman, this this great general of a great army, um, he had leprosy. And on the advice of a, a mere servant girl, he, his wife spoke to him and said, look, apparently there's a prophet in Israel that can that can help secure this incurable disease. And Naaman saw it as his only option. So he went to his king. The king wrote a letter. The letter was taken by Naaman with a, with a huge number of... Um, of servants and, and horses and mules to carry all the the gifts that they were laden with. They went to the king of Israel. The king of Israel read the letter, which, which was from the king of Aram. Now, these two countries had historically been enemies. And the king of Israel read the letter. And the letter said, please find my servant Naaman here. He's got leprosy. And I ask you to arrange for him to be healed. And the king of Israel, he, he has an absolute tantrum. He... he, he he rips his clothes. He's, he's so angry because he says, I've been given an impossible task. I'm going to have to go back saying, no, I haven't got the power to do this. How humiliating. And when I send this man back not cured, not having done what the king of Aram has asked me to do, this, is, this could lead to a declaration of war. This is serious. This is a political nightmare. And so he's absolutely furious until the prophet Elijah says, my Lord, send him to me. Don't panic, don't rip your clothes, don't make a scene, just send him to me. And so Naaman turns up at the door. And he's expecting to be welcomed in. He's expecting to, to have a, um, an audience with the prophet. But instead, that doesn't happen. <clears throat> instead, Elisha simply sends out one of his servants to call out to Naaman, go down to the banks of the Jordan and dip yourself in seven times. And of course, Naaman says, is that it? Is, is, that, is that all you're going to tell me to do? I could have stayed at home and dunked myself in some, some river at home, which was nicer than the, the mucky, stinking old Jordan. I've come all this way and all you're telling me to do is dunking a river a few times this is ridiculous and then he throws a tantrum and starts starts trying to make his way back home until his servants intervene and say my lord um don't you think it's worth giving it a try surely you've come all this way just just do this thing and if it doesn't work then so what so eventually Naaman relents and goes down to the banks of the Jordan and dips himself into the water seven times and after the seventh dunking he comes up the bank and we're told that his skin is clean in fact it's not just clean but his his skin has become clean like that of a child and so naaman goes back to elisha and he stands in front of elisha and he says now i know that there is no god in all the world except in israel please accept now a gift from your servant. <clears throat> and so that's where we left off last week with the, the offer of a gift. And last week we focused on the way that we see a chain of characters, some major characters, powerful characters, kings, leaders, but quite a few very minor characters, quite a few characters that don't even warrant a name in the narrative. We don't know anything about them and as far as we know they're, they're never ever referred to in scripture again. And so we talked about the way that actually this, this, this chain of people passed Naaman from one to another to another to another to another until he goes from being the general in an army of an enemy of Israel to being a man who humbles himself and stands before the prophet and acknowledges that there is no other God except the God of Israel. It's a great story, and it's a great insight into the the, the dynamics of power and the way that God gives power to the powerless in these subtle moments to enable his master plan to be carried out. We can learn an awful lot from that part of the story, but of course the story doesn't end there. And today the passage that we're looking at is the second part of 2 Kings, chapter 5. So we're going to listen to it being read, and then we're going to explore it for ourselves.
1: Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, when my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elijah said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything's all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing." By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them, and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags, with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servant and put them away in his house. He sent the men away, and they left. Then he went in and stood before his master. Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money, or to accept clothes, or olive groves and vineyards, or flocks and herds, or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now
0: before we go any further, let's just cast our minds back to the passage that we read last week and to the itinerary of gifts that Naaman brought with him because the writer of Two Kings specifically lists them. We're told that Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. So he took a vast wealth. He was expecting to have to buy his way to healing. He was expecting to have to, have to maybe give gifts to the king, maybe give gifts to people that he met along the way, maybe even give gifts to the prophet himself, maybe bring gifts to the temple. He was prepared to give generously and he took a huge chunk of wealth because this was his life on the line. If any one of you have ever been in a situation where you're faced with losing someone very, very dear to you, then you will know that at that moment you'll give anything. You'll give, you'll give your house, your car, your bank account, you'll give your, your salary for the next 10 years, anything to save that person. And Naaman Is saving himself. He desperately wants to be healed. He desperately wants not to to be carrying this this disease that's going to eat him away until inevitably he, he dies. He doesn't want to be a social outcast, to be treated like a leper, having to spend time purely with other lepers, to be banished from his own town, his own family. So he's prepared to pay whatever it costs. And last week's reading finished with Naaman saying to Elisha, please accept now a gift from your servant. We spoke last week how how stunning it is that that Naaman has suddenly lowered himself to the level of a servant. But this week we're going to focus on the fact that he's asking Elisha to accept a gift. Sometimes when you... When someone does something for you, an act of kindness, you desperately want to give them something. You want to express gratitude. And sometimes the most humbling thing can be where they say, I don't want anything, it's fine. No, 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 I'm not gonna accept payment, I'm not gonna accept a gift, please, it's fine. I've, just, I've done it because I think it's the right thing to do because I believe it's, it's what I should do. You see, sometimes when we give a gift to acknowledge an act of kindness, we kind of feel like we've, we've levelled the scores. They were really good to me, but I was generous to them. So we're level. Actually, sometimes it's more powerful to not accept. To say, no, that's, that's fine. I've done that act of kindness because I want to do the act of kindness. I don't, I don't need you to, to level the tables because as far as I'm concerned, it's not about that. And that's what Elisha does here. Elisha says, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve... I will not accept a thing. And we're told that Naaman urged him to. Naaman almost begged him to accept something because Naaman was so, so overcome with gratitude. But Elisha said, no, I don't need anything. If you won't accept anything, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, once again, that act of humility, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, <clears throat> For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. And then he goes on to acknowledge something interesting. Having said, I want, to take, I want to take a piece of this back home. I want to dig up a piece of Israel and I want to carry it with me because I want to know that every time I worship God, I can, I can kneel on, on Israel's earth. I can kneel on this ground, holy ground. And so Elisha doesn't have a problem with this. But the next thing Naaman says, he acknowledges this great, powerful general of the army. He acknowledges that he's been, he's been converted. He's, he's acknowledged the God of Israel. But he knows that when he gets home, man, that's going to be a different challenge. Going home and, and telling people about the God of Israel, it's not going to be a bed of roses, it's going to be dangerous. There's going to be threats. There's going to be, there's going to be all sorts of risks involved. Imagine him going to his king and saying, we've been worshipping the wrong God all this time. The God of Israel is, is the true God. The God of our enemies. Actually, do you know what? They were right all along. Can you imagine the humiliation? <clears throat> this is not something which Naaman is relishing. And so he says to Elisha, May the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. So he starts by saying, look, there's going to be times when the king wants to go and worship in the temple of this other god, and he's going to need someone to lean on, um, and that's going to be me. And then he stops himself. He realises he's trying to pull the wool over Elisha's eyes and he thinks, no, I've got to be honest here. When I go and worship in the temple of Rimen, when I go and follow the traditions of my ancestors, when I go and do the thing that I've done all my life, when I'm being watched by by hundreds if not thousands of people in, in ceremonies, in parades, even just privately, I'll be doing that still because it's what my people do. Will you forgive me? For this. And Elisha doesn't judge him, doesn't give him a hard time. Elisha just says, Go in peace. It's an interesting lesson there because so often we can beat ourselves up when we see, when we look at ourselves and reflect on things that we've said or done, and see shadows of our past life being cast over our Christian faith. Maybe if we've been converted when we were late in life or maybe just halfway through life. By that time, there's been so many things embedded in us, so many behavioural traits, so many thought patterns, so many conditioned responses. And being converted to Christianity doesn't mean that suddenly everything stops just like that. It means it's the start of a process of change. When we go through the waters of baptism... We are changed. It's a sign of a, a, an outward sign of an inner change, is the way that we often put it. But it doesn't mean that we go into the waters of baptism full of sin and come out never to sin again. It just signifies the start of a process by which we will seek to live better lives, to come closer and closer to Jesus. And so, of course, Elisha doesn't say, Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Worship, worship in Rimen's temple. Yeah. He just says, go in peace. He doesn't say it's okay. He just says, go in peace. Don't beat yourself up about it. Don't let it become a, an issue. Don't let it become something where you feel so guilty that you've, that you've worshipped in another temple that you can't come and seek forgiveness before God. Go in peace. Learn the ways of God at your own pace. Shut down these other elements of life in your own time, when you feel it's right before God. But the most important thing is that you're taking God with you and that you know it was the God of Israel that healed you. Now, of course, what Elisha could have done was point to the temple of Rimmon and said, you can't worship two masters, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He sends Naaman on his way in peace with his mules that are loaded up with the shekels of gold and silver and all the fine sets of clothing and everything else that he brought with him. And then we cut to another character. We cut to a servant, Gehazi. Now he's the servant of Elisha. And we spoke briefly about him last week. He was, he was a, the, the servant's servant. Elisha was the servant of God. That's, that's the way that a prophet was often referred to, the servant of God. And so Gehazi is, is a servant's servant. We've read about Gehazi in a chapter before, and we've seen that he's loyal, that he's willing to take risks, that he, he's, a, he's a man of action who does things, gets things done. I think he'd be a pretty helpful, helpful guy to know today. But you see, in his position as the servant of a servant of God, he didn't have an awful lot. It wasn't a position which you went into for the money. You can almost imagine when he said to his parents, I'm going to go and work in a temple. Oh, have you been called to be a prophet? No, no, no. No, I'm going to serve the prophet. You're going to serve a prophet? So that guy who has very little who spends his life doing what God asks him to do at any whim, you're going to follow him. You're going to work for him. How are you going to get paid? How are you going to feed yourself? Well, I trust in God. Oh, we had such high hopes for you. We thought you were going to be something. We thought you were going to, going to, going to do something with life. You're going, to, you're going to do that. You're never going to go anywhere. I know, but it's the right thing to do. Okay. You can imagine his parents being a bit disappointed with that. And Gehazi has served loyally. He's got the trust of Elisha. They've got a good relationship. And then suddenly, suddenly, this foreign leader turns up, this foreign dignitary. And he turns up with so much wealth that Gehazi has never seen before. He turns up with so much, so many riches. The fine clothing, the, the sacks of gold and silver, weighing down these mules. He's got his own servants. And all these things he's carrying, he's, he's just offered to Elisha. This was a game changer. This was such a significant amount of wealth that, that Elisha could have taken it. He could have built a new temple. He could have, he could have done anything. He could, have, he could have invested it, he could have spent it, they could have had a, had a good time. He could have employed more, more staff, lighten the load on Gehazi. Or maybe he could have given a gift to Gehazi. Because let's face it, Gehazi probably, probably goes home and he's got a wife who's never had a new dress and he's got children that run round in the dirt barefoot because as a father... He's chosen a path in life that means he'll never be able to provide those things for the ones that he loves. And he's been happy with this situation up until now, but suddenly temptation has been put in front of him. Suddenly he's had a glimpse of life on the other side, and boy does he like it. It's been offered on a plate to Elisha, this man who he's got so much love and respect for, and Elisha has politely declined it and sent it away. And Gehazi just can't believe it. This doesn't mean that Gehazi's a bad person. Please don't think of him as being mean. He's just human. He's just as vulnerable and weak as you or I. No better, no worse. He has this huge temptation put in front of him. This wealth which he would he's, he's never got any prospects of gaining himself through, through legitimate means. And it's been offered as a gift. It's not even like he's stealing it. It's been offered as a free gift in acknowledgement of the work that Elisha and Gehazi have played a part in. And he just can't let it go. So he waits until Naaman has travelled quite some distance. He waits until Naaman has disappeared from view. You see, Gehazi knows that this is not the right thing to do. He knows that the best thing to do is just to follow the lead that Elisha has set, to be humble, to be loyal, just to let it go. But he just can't. Once temptation has been put in front of us, once we've, we've seen an open door and we think, no one's looking, there's no risk here, this is being offered to me, we find it very, very difficult to do the right thing even when we know the right thing is to walk straight past that door and ignore it, we find it very, very difficult to be obedient. Gehazi is no different to you or I. He waits until Naaman and his caravan have disappeared over the horizon, and then you can almost imagine the scene. He suddenly maybe says to Elisha, ''Oh, I've just, just, I don't think I've I locked the back door this morning. I'm just going to nip home and check.'' Or maybe Elisha's praying with someone and Gehazi just quietly backs away and disappears. We don't know. What we do know is that at that moment, he did something which ruined his relationship with Elisha, which caused a lifelong curse to be put upon him. He convinces himself. How many times do we do that? We convince ourselves, oh, it's okay. haven't got to get up in the morning. I'll have one more drink. When you know you're on your limit, you shouldn't. Or maybe there's no speed cameras down here. I'm running a bit late. I'll put my foot down. It's the wrong thing to do. Or maybe I know I've hit my limit of Weight Watchers points, but I'm gonna have that slice of cake. I'll make up for it tomorrow. Again, it's the wrong thing to do. We've entered into a commitment. We're subject to certain laws and rules that we, that we should keep. And we shouldn't try and justify these things to ourselves, making it seem as if, as if a, a small indiscretion it doesn't matter. Elisha is out of the picture. And Gehazi suddenly has no one to stop him. So he convinces himself. He says... My master was too easy on Naaman, the Aramean, the Syrian. This is, a, this is, this is an enemy. This is, this is the ones we were fighting against a few years ago. We need to be, we need to be taking advantage of this. We can take some of, some of the enemy's wealth. What if in a few years' time we're back at war with them? That wealth can be ours. We can give it to our king if we don't keep it ourselves. It can be used to line our coffers rather than theirs. Oh, Elisha's made a mistake here. He's been way too easy. We need to focus on, on getting some of that wealth for ourselves. I'm going to go and do it. I'm going to do the right thing here. You see, he's convinced himself. He's gone through that thought process and convinced himself. He says, My master's been too easy on Naaman for not accepting what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. He brings God into it. As surely as the Lord lives... I'm going to go and get something. I'm going to go and, and take that payment that was offered. And of course, we see Gehazi running after Naaman. He chases down the chariot, and when Naaman sees him coming, he stops, because Naaman is thinking, oh, there's that, there's that guy who was so kind and so generous. His master healed me. It, he's, got, he's, got a, he's got a hotline to God. I need to listen to this man. What's he going to say? I trust him. And Gehazi makes up a story. He says, oh, a couple of guys have just turned up and we need to give them gifts and haven't got anything, so actually we will take some of, some of what you offered. Naaman says, by all means, take, take double what you want. Whatever, just take as much as you like. And Naaman instructs a couple of his servants there's so much so much he's giving so much silver it's so heavy that they load it onto mules and and a couple of his servants take it back to to the house and Gehazi's carrying it as well and he bids farewell to Naaman and they get back and Gehazi hides the wealth he hides what he's taken because he knows it was the wrong thing to do you see sometimes we can convince ourselves that something is right whereas actually it's completely wrong and we we know it's wrong deep down we know that we're just trying to we're just trying to make things suit our own agenda sometimes we try and twist scripture to suit our own personal agenda or sometimes we, we we just hide something away and ignore it and pretend that that we haven't we haven't done what we've done whereas actually the best thing we can do is come clean if Gehazi had gone back and said, Elisha, I've just done something stupid, I need to talk to you, maybe this story would end differently, but he doesn't. He gets back, having hidden what he's taken, stands in the presence of Elisha, and Elisha says, Where have you been? Gehazi says, Nowhere. I haven't been anywhere. What are you talking about? And Elisha says, I know where you've been. My spirit was with you. Now, we don't know quite what happened. We don't know whether this was a supernatural knowledge that Elisha was given, some sort of insight into what was happening over the lip of the horizon, or whether Elisha happened to look out the window and see Gehazi making his way like a a gazelle across the plain to try and catch Naaman. We don't know if he saw him coming back laden with wealth or if he overheard a conversation. We have no idea. But somehow, Elisha knows exactly what's happened. He says, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? When Naaman stopped and got down and met you and you told him a lie? and you took the wealth under false pretenses and you came back and you hid it because you're guilty and then you came into my presence and you told me a lie. That whole episode of despicable behaviour. Don't think I don't know about it. Oh, can you imagine being Gehazi at that moment? Being confronted and suddenly realising the implications of the damage that you've caused. But as I say, we shouldn't give Gehazi too hard a time. It's so difficult when we, when we start talking about money in church. Because actually, it's very easy to, to, to give, the hard, give a hard time to those who have plenty and get all soft and, and poetic about, about the poor having nothing. But it's not quite right, is it? Because here we have someone who is very poor, desperately trying to, to accept a gift that was offered. Not, he's not stealing He's just accepting a gift, but he's doing it under false pretenses. And so we can't say that he deserved it. It's awkward when we start talking about money. In Psalm 1, we read that someone who meditates on the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. It almost seems to suggest that, that if we are faithful to God, then we'll be successful on earth. And of course, in a way, that's true, because God measures success in a very different way to the way that we do. God talks about us building up treasure in heaven, about us as, as earning credit, almost, in the heavenly realm, doing the right thing. Whereas we look at when we read about someone prospering, we tend to think of, of all the trappings of a fine earthly life. But then, of course, when we read later on in Psalm 73, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked you see, here the psalmist has, has gone from Psalm chapter 1 where there's a link between being faithful to God and, and being prosperous. Here he's saying, I envy the arrogant when I see the prosperity of the wicked. Suddenly prosperity is, is, is closely linked to the, the arrogant and the wicked. And it causes us to envy, which is an ugly emotion. It's an ugly thing to feel. We have to be so careful in the way that we deal with money and with our feelings towards money as Christians. You see, Jesus, Matthew six twenty four, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And as soon as Gehazi is is overcome with with envy, with with almost this this lust for money, as soon as that happens, suddenly God is taken from the centre of his life and put out on the periphery. Suddenly for that, that short period, his sole focus is on gaining material wealth, is on, is on waiting until the coast is clear and then making a bolt for it and finding Naaman and taking everything that was offered and then getting home and hiding it away. And that is, that is suddenly his obsession. From that point onwards, everything, every aspect of his existence would be spent hiding, hiding what he's got and working out ways that he can enjoy the benefits of it without other people finding out. When he gets home and his wife says, wow, where did you, how did you afford this dress? We haven't got money for things like that, thank you, but where's it come from? How's he going to tell her? What story is he going to make up? And when his children, dad, how come I can suddenly afford these shoes? I've never had shoes before. Where's this come from? What's he going to say to them? The mesh of lies is going to grow more and more intense. It's going to become more finely interwoven until eventually it will trip him up. But of course we know he doesn't get even that far because Elisha has seen straight away what's gone on. He knows what's gone on and he knows there is no way that Gehazi can come back from this. Jesus makes it clear, no one can serve two masters. Now that, now that Gehazi has, has seen this other master, now that he's been tempted by it, suddenly that's it. It's interesting, isn't it? You would have heard it said before that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Look at Naaman at the start of this chapter. Naaman had everything, the palaces, the army, the status, the wealth. He had all this stuff, but he didn't have God. And when he, when he realised how, how, how fickle life is, when he realised how we are all just hanging by a thread, he suddenly realised that the most important thing he could have in his life is God. And he was willing to give up all that wealth. He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to, to become a servant. And he went away happy because he had God. And he couldn't care less about his wealth. He was happy to give that away. He didn't care. Gehazi, on the other hand, has God at the start of the story. He has God. He's faithfully serving the prophet Elisha. But he sees Naaman... And he sees the wealth, and his head is turned. And at the end of the story, he's, he's, he's given up God in favour of wealth. And it is such a sad story. It is such a sad story. Because it's a story that we see time and time again. Someone has God at the centre of their life, and then their head's turned. And it's turned by the affair or by the bottle or by the money or by the corruption or by the gambling or by any number of other things that can creep into our lives and eat away at us and turn our heads and divert our focus away from God. Gehazi's story is a warning to us all and it's a warning that we should pay heed to. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For nothing, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Godliness with contentment is great gain. At the end of this story, Elisha scolds Gehazi. He has a real go at him. He says, is this, is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maid servants. In other words, do you really think this is the time to want what Naaman has got? Naaman has just Naaman's suddenly got what we've got. He's got God. We should celebrate that. And if we take payment for it, he's gonna feel like he's he's levelled the playing field. He's gonna feel like actually I've I've bought their God. There was a price on God. And I've paid that price. So now we're even. We're even Elisha says, You want to be like Naaman? You want everything Naaman's got? Yeah, you want you want his you want his, his You want his money? You want his clothes? You want his olive groves, his vineyards, his flocks, his herds, his men servants and maid servants? You want everything Naaman's got? Yeah? Okay, Gehazi, you you have it. You've got all the wealth. You don't have to give it back. You don't have to give it to the king. You've got it. You've also got his leprosy. You want everything he's got? You've got his leprosy. It will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and he was leprous, as white as snow. We have to be very careful what we desire in life. You see, money carries germs. Money itself, as we've heard many times before, is not evil. It's an inanimate object. But it conjures up a very ugly trait in our character. It conjures up lust and greed and envy. All these things that cause us to focus on it, to dwell on how we can get more of it, to build up and build up and build up our own wealth. And as soon as we start focusing on money... That becomes our master. And we can't serve two masters. So this whole story, this whole chapter in in 2 Kings chapter 5 is a a wonderful demonstration of how God uses small, insignificant people as far as the world is concerned. He gives power to the powerless. But he also honours our desires. If our desire is to find him, he honours that and he meets us. But if our desire, if our desire is to build up an empire, if our desire is to try and be as wealthy as the next person, then we have to be prepared to accept the bad side of that as well as the good. You see, God wants every single one of us to prosper in life. And the best way that we can prosper is through having a healthy relationship with him, a relationship that that relaxes us, that causes us to to be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so this week, this month, this year, this life, let's try and make that something that we come back to time and time again, that we remind ourselves there is no greater riches in the world than the riches that come through a healthy relationship with God. Let's make sure that we are are prayerful, that we are close to him through scripture and meditation, that we look at the world around us and we we take note of the the small insignificant people that the world tells us are everywhere, but actually we know that according to God, they are anything but insignificant. God loves each and every one of us. So let's make sure that we reciprocate that love, that we keep him at the centre of our lives and that we keep our focus not On wealth not on the trappings of a fine life but instead on God and the trappings of a fine soul let's pray Heavenly Father as we as we look at the world around us we see that there are so many riches that you've created there are so many wonderful and beautiful things that we can dwell on where we can meet with you as a father we pray that you will help us not to focus on financial gain, but instead to be grateful for the gifts that you've given us, to be grateful for the the place in life that you have put us in. Father, we pray that you will help us to be generous, to be kind to all those around us, that you will help us to acknowledge when something takes our focus away from you and to act to make sure that we put that right as quickly as possible. Father, we thank you for the cross and the, the fact that, that when we do let our, our focus shift away from you, we can always, always come back to you through what Jesus has done for us on the cross and seek forgiveness and know that it will be given. So Lord, we pray for your protection over us this week. We pray that you will, you will help us to focus on you. We pray you'll help us to to recognise the lives that you want us to lead, to be the people that you want us to be, and that you will help us step by step to come closer and closer to you. Lord, help us to learn lessons from this story that we've studied the past two weeks. Help us to learn lessons and to be honest when we look at our own lives to identify times that maybe we've, maybe we've let you down, maybe we've failed you, but also to, to take heart from the number of times that we've got it right, the number of times that we have focused on you, that we have that we have been obedient to you. Father, thank you that you are a God who, who is with us in our lowest points and is also with us in our highest points as well. Never do you give up on us. Never do you leave us. Never do you forsake us. For you are God, and you love your people. So bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.